0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Into the Mess. It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 22, 2019, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Every third year, our lectionary turns its spotlight away from Mary and gives us the perspective of her would-be husband, a quiet, unassuming descendant of the house of David. So our entry point into the Nativity story on this fourth Sunday of Advent is not Mary, or Elizabeth, or John the Fiery Baptizer. It is Joseph, a quiet carpenter who upends his good life for a dream. If we attempted to sideline Joseph as a minor character in the Christmas narrative, the Gospel of Matthew reminds us that in fact, Joseph's role in Jesus' arrival is pivotal. It is his willingness to lean into the impossible, to embrace the scandalous, to abandon his notions of holiness in favor of God's messy plan of salvation that allows the miracle of Christmas to unfold. As Matthew makes clear, the Messiah must come from the house and lineage of David, and so it rests on Joseph to give his name and his legitimacy to Mary's child. If Joseph refuses, the fulfillment of prophecy comes to a halt. The Gospel describes Joseph as a righteous man, which is to say a man devoted to God and concerned with clean, ethical living. Though Matthew doesn't elaborate, I think we can safely assume that Mary's betrothed is not a guy who likes to make waves, or call attention to himself, or venture too close to controversy. Like most of us, he wants an orderly life. He's honest and hardworking. He follows the rules. He practices justice and fairness, and all he wants in exchange is a normal, uncomplicated life. Is that too much to ask? Poor Joseph. Does he remind you of anyone you know? As Matthew tells the story, the God-fearing carpenter wakes up one morning to find that his world has shattered. His fiancé is pregnant. He knows for sure that he is not the father, and suddenly he has no good options to choose from. If he calls attention to Mary's pregnancy, she might be stoned to death, as the Levitical law prescribes. If he divorces her quietly, she'll be reduced to begging or prostitution to support herself and the child. If, on the other hand, he marries her, her son will be Joseph's heir instead of his own biological child. Moreover, Joseph will be tainted forever by the scandal of Mary's illicit pregnancy and by her ridiculous, blasphemous, claim that the baby's dad is somehow God. Matthew doesn't go into much detail about Joseph's anguish. However, in the Proto-Evangelium of James, an extra-canonical text from the 2nd century CE, we get a fuller, harsher picture of the carpenter's pain. When Joseph sees Mary's swollen belly, he throws himself on the ground, strikes his own face, and cries bitterly. He wonders long and hard how to respond and asks Mary why she has betrayed both him and God so cruelly. Though this text isn't in our canon, it's not hard to imagine a similar scene playing out between Joseph and Mary in real life. The fact is Mary didn't believe Mary's Joseph didn't believe Mary's story until Gabriel told him to. Why would he? Why would anyone We make a grave mistake, I think, when we sanitize Joseph's consent. We distort his humanity when we assume that his acceptance of God's plan came easily. When we hold ourselves at arm's length from his humiliation and doubt. In fact, what Joseph's pain shows me is that God's favor is not the shiny, anodyne thing I'd like to believe it is. It's not the God of the New Testament who promises wealth, health, comfort, and ease to his chosen ones. That's just me getting it wrong. In choosing Joseph to be Jesus' earthly father, God led a righteous man with an impeccable reputation straight into doubt, shame, scandal, and controversy. God's call required Joseph to reorder everything he thought he knew about fairness, justice, goodness, and purity. It required him to become the talk of the town and not in a good way. It required him to embrace a mess he had not created to love a woman whose story he didn't understand, to protect a baby he didn't father, to accept an heir who was not his son. In other words, God's messy plan of salvation required Joseph, a quiet, cautious, status quo kind of guy, to choose precisely what he feared and dreaded most. The fraught, the complicated, the suspicious and the inexplicable. So much for living a well-ordered life. Then again, Joseph's story gives me hope. I can't relate to a person who leaps headlong into obedience. I can relate, however, to a person who struggles, to a person whose yes is cautious, ambivalent, and scared. I'm grateful that Joseph's choice was a hard one. I'm glad he struggled, because I struggle too. Interestingly, in the verses that immediately precede our Gospel reading, Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus' ancestors. He mentions Abraham, the patriarch who abandoned his son, Ishmael, and twice endangered his wife's safety to in, order his own, in order to save his own skin. He mentions Jacob, the trickster usurper who humiliated his older brother. He mentions David, who slept with another man's wife and then ordered that man's murder to protect his own reputation. He mentions Tamar, who pretended to be a sex worker, and Rahab, who was one. These are just a few representative samples. Notice anything? Anything like messiness, complication, scandal, sin? How interesting that God, who could have chosen any genealogy for his son, chose a long line of brokenness, imperfection, dishonor, and scandal. The perfect backdrop for his beautiful works of restoration, healing, hope, and second chances. There is much to ponder in the nativity story, much to consider about the surprising ways of God. Who brings salvation into the world via a young woman whose story about her own sex life was not believed? Via a good, well meaning man who had to let go of his righteousness in order to follow God? Via the flimsiness of dreams? Via a helpless, illegitimate baby? No wonder that the angel Gabriel's first words to Joseph were Do not be afraid. If we want to enter into God's messy story, then perhaps these are the first words we need to hear too. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid when God's work in your life looks alarmingly different than you thought it would. Do not be afraid when God upends your cherished assumptions about righteousness. Do not be afraid when God asks you to stand alongside the scandalous, the defiled, the suspected, and the shamed. Do not be afraid when God asks you to love something or someone more than your own spotless reputation. Do not be afraid of the precarious, the fragile, the vulnerable, the impossible. Do not be afraid of the mess. The mess is the place where God dwells. For books this week, Dan reviews How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States by Daniel Immerwar. I read this book because I'm interested in the subject of American exceptionalism, whatever that means, and also because of the effusive recommendation on the back cover by one of my favorite authors. Quote There are many histories of American expansionism, writes Andrew Bakovich. How to hide an empire renders them all obsolete. It is brilliantly conceived, utterly original, and immensely entertaining, simultaneously vivid, sardonic, and deadly serious. The book is a bit long, but I was not in the least bit disappointed. Imarwar, an associate professor of history at Northwestern University, has written an important book about an important subject. When most of us think about a map of the United States, what our country looks like, we almost always imagine what Imarwar calls the logo map, a term coined by Benedict Anderson, that is, a silhouette of the lower 48 states. In fact, this default mental map is grossly misleading. The logo map often doesn't even include Hawaii or Alaska. Nor does it does not include Puerto Rico, which has been part of the United States since 1899. You won't see American Samoa, Guam, or the Virgin Islands, and you sure won't see the nearly 100 islands claimed or controlled by the United States around the year 1940. Incredibly, at the end of World War II, the American mainland had a population of about 132 million. But that was dwarfed by the colonized population of 135 million people who lived in the U.S. as many territories, possessions, commonwealths, mandates, dominions, and strategic trusts like Micronesia. And whereas those days of territorial domination have today given way to what you might call technological annexation, most people have no idea that today the U.S. maintains a planetary presence with over 800 military bases around the globe. Britain and France have a combined 13 overseas bases. Russia has nine. So Imawara's book is really about his subtitle. He wants us to move beyond the misleading logo map by documenting the history of the greater United States, since its buoyantly expansionist early days until now. This is a lost history to most of us, one about which we are ignorant or indifferent. Consider, for example, that the U.S. conquest of the Philippines from 1899 to 1903 killed more people than those who died in the Civil War, or that some 1.6 million people died in the Philippines in World War II, making it by far the most destructive event ever to take place on U.S. soil. In 1901, Britain began to celebrate an official holiday called Empire Day. Since 1958, it has been called Commonwealth Day. Americans, on the other hand, have always been deeply ambivalent about its own empire, Imowar's book helps us to show why and how that's the case. For more on American Empire, see our JWJ archives for my reviews of the books by Andrew Bakovich, Chalmers Johnson, Wes Avram, Fareed Zachariah, and Colin Murphy. For Films This Week, Dan reviews Lone Star, Stevie Ray Vaughan, 1984-1989. It's hard to imagine today, but when Stevie Ray Vaughan and his band's Double Trouble played at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1982, their set ended with boos from some of the audience. Admittedly, at the time, they had no real national reputation, no record out, and no contract, but still. Listeners just had no idea what to think of the electrified blues rock of a virtuoso who was now on every list of the top ten guitarists of all time. This documentary film covers a five-year period of time in Vaughn's life, from the age of 29, when Double Trouble released its first album, Texas Flood, which established his superstardom, to his tragic death in a helicopter crash at the age of 35. The film tells the story of Vaughn through concert footage and interviews with his bandmates, biographers, music critics, booking agent, manager, and most notably his fiancée at the time, Jana Lapidus. There are two stories here. Bonds five albums, and his descent into and remarkable recovery from severe drug and alcohol addictions. I watched this film on Amazon Prime. And lastly, for poetry, on this fourth, fourth Sunday of Advent, Gabriel's Annunciation by Jan Richardson. For a moment I hesitated on the threshold. For the space of a breath I paused, unwilling to disturb her last ordinary moment, knowing that the next step would cleave her life, that this day would slice her story in two, dividing all the days before from all the ones to come. The artist would later depict the scene, Mary dazzled by the archangel, her head bowed in humble assent, awed by the messenger who condescended to leave paradise to bestow such an honor upon a woman and mortal. Yet I tell you, it was I who was dazzled, I, who found myself agape when I came upon her, reading, at the loom, in the kitchen, I cannot now recall, only that the woman before me, blessed and full of grace, long before I called her so, shimmered with how completely she inhabited herself, inhabited the space around her, inhabited the moment that hung between us. I wanted to save her from what I had been sent to say, Yet when the time came, when I had stammered the invitation, history would not record the sweat on my brow, the pounding of my heart would not note that I said, do not be afraid to myself as much as to her. It was she who saved me, her first deliverance, her let it be, not just declaration to the divine, but a word of solace, of soothing, of benediction. For the angel in the doorway who would hesitate one last time just for the space of a breath torn from his chest before wrenching himself away from her radiant consent, her beautiful and awful yes. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for December 22, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.